We're looking this morning at the subject of worship through the medium of music. And if you look at your bulletin outline, the first thing I want to discuss is essential music. And by that I mean what must be in a worship service with regard to worshiping God. You have it in verse 17 and following of our text. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, so we're going to talk about what the Lord's will is. What's his will? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. That, in short, is what the Lord's will is. Now, I want you to notice that Paul's first charge is directed towards the edifying effect of congregational singing. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. ESV, English Standard Version, says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Phillips translation, express your joy in singing among yourselves psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So they all kind of get the idea of what is being said here. And I find it interesting that Paul's first charge in the area of music is to the people about the people. The statement refers to how ministry is carried out with music within the congregation. Ephesians is the book of the New Covenant in which the apostle take some serious time to advocate for the building up of believers in the faith. For example, in the previous chapter, Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following, lists the officers of the church and their responsibility, which, verse 12, is to prepare God's people for works of service. Okay, that's our job as officers. But then just a few short verses later, after exalting Christ... As the head of the church, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4 Verse 15 and 16. Now here we are, one chapter later, chapter 5, and Paul is talking about singing within a congregational setting, and the singing is commanded to be sung to one another. Hmm. Why would we sing to one another? Well, it is part and parcel to the building up of the body of Christ as all of us move on the vertical plane to become more and more like Christ. Have you ever thought, this, I'm putting this out this, this morning, have you ever thought of participation in congregational singing as a means of edifying one another in the faith? And in particular, in the goal of becoming more like Christ. The fact that Jesus anticipated music as part of the worship of him, and that's the next phrase, and we're going to look at that in a moment as well. But for now, I just want you to consider that your singing builds up your brothers and sisters 
in the faith. We speak to one another with praise, hymns, and spiritual songs, and not just to the Lord. We help each other grow in grace and grow in knowledge as we sing. How can such singing build people up? Well, it does so by the content of what is sung. Okay, then the question comes, what is the content for singing in worship services? Well, Paul lists three things. Here they are. Psalms. The Hebrew word is mizmar, and it means a poem set to music. It comes from the Hebrew word, which means to strike with the fingers the strings of an instrument, to make music accompanied by the voice. Now just think about that. You can't have a poem without the content of the voice. Yeah, an instrumentalist could play a song, but you wouldn't know what the poem was. The poem is the lyrics, and you have to have the voice expressing that. Think of all the psalms that we have in our Bible. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Psalms. But they're found everywhere in the Bible, not just in the book of Psalms. Written by David, Asaph, Moses, others, the Psalter become, became the hymn book of the Old Testament people. Now some churches, following the practice of the Puritans, are strictly psalm singers in their worship. We, shouldn't, we should not denigrate them for that. It's fine if they want to sing just the psalms set to music. By the way, we don't know what the music of the Old Testament sounded like. We have the instruments. We're going to look at them uh, a bit later here but we don't know what it sounded like. All right, let me ask this question. What is it about the Psalms that make them a safe and reliable expression of worship which is acceptable to God? Is it not that such poems are part of the sacred canon of Scripture? Now, I didn't say scriptural, but scripture. Something can be scriptural if you take the ideas of scripture and write something about it. But when you're dealing with the Psalms, you're actually dealing with scripture that was ordained by God. It's just scripture set to music. I don't think you can stray too far in theology or human expression of worship when the words that you are singing are the inspired text of scripture. That's what is meant by the Psalms. So that's one thing that ought to be part of our worship. And by the way, Trinity does a pretty nice job of uh, setting uh, the Psalms uh, to uh, music. Next one in the text, hymns. This is a translation. It's a, a transliteration. It's the Greek word humnas. So you can see where they're getting hymn. Uh, they just, just made a word out of the. Uh, Greek characters. This means a praise or celebration song. 
And also a seam. This is the word that is used in Matthew 26, verse 30, where we are told the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, the disciples, minus Judas, he wasn't there, ate the Passover feast with Jesus. And Matthew records, when they had sung a hymnos, a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And you know where the Mount of Olives contained the Garden of Gethsemane, where the disciples, along with Jesus, entered into great prayer. Now here's my question. Why would Jesus sing a praise song when with his disciples just before his arrest, trial, and eventual crucifixion? Or to ask it another way, what was celebratory about that night and that event? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Okay, what could possibly be joyous about betrayal that led to a cross? And being found in appearance as a man, writes Paul, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This is all from Philippians 2, verse 8 and following. Can I say it this way? The joy of the cross for Jesus was the completion of the Father's determination to save a people from their sin by substituting His Son in their place, for which Christ happily volunteered. Let's say it this way. Sometimes we hear theologians say that Christ was a victim. He was not a victim. He was a volunteer. He went to the cross on purpose with full cognizance of what was going on. And so the disciples that night sung a celebratory song as they left the upper room of the Passover feast and went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where great agony and great torture of spirit Encompass Christ, wherein we read that he sweat great drops of blood. So it's kind of this mixture, but there's the joy of the cross for Jesus to complete the work of the Father. And can I say that many of our hymns, in both of our hymnals, celebrate Jesus' work of atonement. They're celebratory hymns. All right, thirdly, we're told in our text, Something about spiritual songs. This is a Greek word that's it's pneumatikos. Pneuma, meaning spirit, breath, 
All the men know what pneumatic tools are. It's those tools you hook up to your air compressor, nailers, wrenches, things of that nature, that are run by compressed air. Pneuma is this word. It means spirit or breath, and it's reference to the Holy Spirit. So something that's pneumaticas is, is uh, imbued with the power of the Spirit. These are songs of particular holy or somber reflection. Paul calls the law pneumaticas in Romans 7 verse 14 in contrast to his own sinful flesh. He says, I am a sinner sold under sin, uh, but the law is pneumaticas. It is spirit breathed. Now, rather than spiritual songs referring to the contemporary Christian music, as some have suggested, the word is full of reverence and awe. Paul uses this to explain his ministry of preaching the gospel. Let me read it for you. This is what we speak, writes Paul to the Corinthians, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words, pneumaticas, spiritual words. Words full of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. So, for a song to be spiritual, spiritual song, it must be bathed in the purity of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. You need to ask yourself, can you picture God's Spirit singing or promoting this song or that song? that is being sung as far part of our worship? That's a good question to ask. So, congregational singing is edifying. It'll build up your brothers and sisters in Christ in that the music sung and played consists of psalms, praise poems from Scripture itself set to music, hymns, celebration songs, spiritual songs, Songs whose words and music are saturated with the holiness of God's Spirit and all sung and played with fervor and joy. This is part of essential music, or essential worship, rather. Essential worship. Secondly, essential music has a Godward element. Well, we would expect that, right? Verse 19, the latter part of the verse. Sing and make music, NIV says, in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to, the, to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now think about this. We are studying a verse that commands that music be a part of our worship of God, but people have used this verse to teach just the opposite. Say, so what do you mean? Well, Many people place the emphasis of the command on the little word in, I-N. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. And the interpretation they give is this. I do not have to sing audibly so long as I'm singing in my heart to the Lord. And to bolster this view, this view they go on to say, and God knows my heart, which of course is true. But they're using the omniscience of God, God knows, to excuse themselves from singing audibly. 
And I've heard all the excuses. <laughs> I can't sing. When I sing, I sing flat, so I'm embarrassed. I cannot carry a tune. I do not have an ear for music. And on and on and on it goes. Well, let me tell you that all of these things notwithstanding, here is what the text actually states. And the English Standard Version got it right. Here it goes. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. That's what the text is saying. Sing to the Lord with all your heart. Now I know why the other translations opt for in the heart instead of with all the heart. And that is because any true devotion to God in worship begins in the heart. I mean, think about that. That's true. But where there's sincerity in worship, the singing will of necessity be with all your heart. Nothing held back as we express our thanksgiving, it's in the text, to God the Father for all that he has done for us in Christ. I would even go so far as to say that one can sense the sincerity of people in worshiping God by their participation in singing praises and thanksgiving to God with fervor and with passion. Now, it's not the only criteria in our singing, as we've already noted. The music, the lyrics, the decorum of the participants must not violate what God deems as holy. But profane is not necessarily a characteristic of passion. We're to be engaged in the lyrics and in the music so long as these exalt the Savior, not the singer, not the musician. Oh, and what about that problem of feeling incompetent to sing well or play an instrument without hitting a few sour notes? Look at verse 21 of our text. Paul commands that we address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and then he further commands that we are to sing and make melody. By the way, that word make melody means to twang the strings. Do you that like country music? <laughs> twang. You wouldn't think that would be in the Bible, would you? There, there it is. That making melody, twanging the strings to the Lord with all your heart. Now notice verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I read that and I say, how did that slip into the conversation? What does submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ have to do with singing and making music in the church? Let me tell you a true story. Um, I'm not much of a storyteller, but once in a while I like true stories. Every Christmas season... Our church presents a program of music and praise to God that's open to the public. You know that. For many years, we have incorporated choirs from Swartz Creek High School. They sing some numbers. Our choir sings some numbers. We sing some numbers together. But last year, the weather made it dangerous to have all those high schoolers coming from Swartz Creek out on the road, and so we canceled them. Think about this. This is Sunday. We're going to do the 
concert that very evening, and we are making phone calls, Jared is, making phone calls, canceling the Swartz Creek choirs that come. But we went on with the program utilizing just our own in-house choir. One visitor who comes every year is quite an accomplished Christian musician in his own right. He sings solo parts in the community presentations of Handel's Messiah. He sings the, the lead parts. If you know anything about Handel's Messiah, it is not easy music to sing. He teaches music on the college level. He has been asked to perform in various quality programs throughout the state. But every year, scheduling permitting, he will be found where you are sitting, listening to a small country church choir with no formal music training whatsoever, and his praise and thanksgiving is genuinely expressed to me and others, usually in the words, what a very fine job that was done tonight. And I say to myself, a fine job? Really? With many sour notes, with uh, miscues of music, with half the supporting choirs missing? with a number of our own people out sick, so people filling in, and with women singing tenor because we don't have enough men to sing the tenor line. A very fine job. Well, here is his definition of a fine music program, and I'm paraphrasing. Here we'll say something to the effect. The lyrics sung, the musical accompaniment, the chosen hymns, the scripture readings are all so God-honoring compared to what others are doing in the name of God. It is an utter delight to be with you every year and hear the gospel read and sung. What is this? It is the humble submitting, humble submitting to one another referenced by Paul in a man whose musical skills excel ours many times over, but whose praise is for what God is doing through our humble efforts, and herein he rejoices. You know, each of us need to grasp something of this submission to one another. Submission to one another. Then you will not be so self-conscious about singing with all your heart to Christ, as though somebody might be listening in. Somebody is. The words of Jesus haunt me at times like this. At times when I am self-conscious, timid, afraid. Here's the words. Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8, verse 38. Worship, brethren, is about God, not you. Let us repent of our timidity. Let us become engaged. So then essential music is worship consisting of songs whose lyrics teach and encourage and strengthen the brethren who are gathered here beside you and whose Music maintains a holy demeanor. It is also songs sung with all of our heart to the praise and thanksgiving of God for who and what He is and for what He has done. 
This is essential. This is essential. Now, secondly, there is some non-essential but complementary music in worship. Listed in your bulletin for bulletin outline, choirs. Choirs. We already referenced choirs. But here's the question. From where did the church get the concept of choirs? Is this a command in Scripture for choirs, or is this just the invention of man? Well, Nehemiah, unwittingly, perhaps, gives us the history of choirs, as he talks about the completion of the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem. Let me read it for you. We read it in our, in our meditation reading this morning. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. That's L-Y-R-E-S. It's not L-I-A-R-S. <laughs> the music of lyres. The singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. I also assigned, Nehemiah is speaking here, I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall. The choir sang under the direction of Jezariah. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And then speaking of the priests, he says, They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did all the, also the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, here it is, Long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Nehemiah 12, verse 27 and following. So the singers, who also composed the choirs, were established in the days of David and Solomon. And this makes sense when you think about it, since it was David who composed the lion's share of the psalms. And so we get the idea that these appointed singers or choirs were established to aid the music expression of worship to the people, by the people. They were such of such large numbers that they even built cities for themselves. The singers built their own cities around Jerusalem in which they lived. Probably practice, learn. Maybe these are the forerunners of the academies for the arts. Uh, that we have in modern society. So that's choirs. Secondly, in addition to vocal music, choirs and singers, David also established instruments or instrumentalists. Let me read it for you. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, now not Haman. Haman is a, with that wicked man in the book of Esther. This is Heman, H-E-M-A-N and Jeduthun, three patriarchs, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. And then you have this lengthy list of names. And then he goes on. All these men were under the supervision of their fathers for the music of the temple of the Lord, 
with cymbals, lyres, harps for the ministry of the house of God. Asaph, Jaduthun, and Heman were under the supervision of the king. Along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord, they numbered 288. Young and old alike, teachers as well as students, they cast lots for their duties. That is for their service schedule. First Chronicles 25, first eight verses. So he had these schools of music, and they were learning instruments as well, and then they cast lots to see which group of singers and musicians would serve the Lord at a particular time. Now, we read of some of these instruments, but if you look in the Bible, there are some that aren't mentioned in this text, but they're mentioned in the Bible. And the instruments involve most, they involve most of the categories into which modern-day instruments fall. I don't know if you know this. Harps and lyres, these are string instruments. Trumpets, and the mention of the horn without saying that it's a trumpet. These, in our day, are made out of brass. In the Bible days, they were made out of silver. But they were horns. They were used for battle calls. But let me read this. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts, new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Numbers 10, verse 10. Or again, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, which is the precursor of castanets, and cymbals. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. So you have in the cymbals percussion instruments. Our, our pianos, I don't know if you know that, but pianos are in the per- percussion category it's there's a hammer in there striking so percussion striking the strings flutes are not mentioned in this text but they're in the woodwind family and you will sing as one on the night you celebrated a holy festival your hearts will rejoice as when people go up with flutes to the mountain of the lord to the rock of israel isaiah 30 verse 21 so you have flutes mentioned You're all wondering, what about drums? Right? Drums are mentioned in regard to Nebuchadnezzar's edict to the Hebrews. Let me read it for you. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, then well and good. But if you do not worship you shall be immediately thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Daniel 3, verse 15. That's from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. You do not find the word drums in King James Version, and you will not find it in the NIV. Here's why. When I check the original language, the word in Hebrew is a transliteration. That means it's not a translation. It means they made up a word from the, from the Hebrew words. And the word they made up is, is a psalterion. Psalterion. Sounds sound like psalms, doesn't it? Psalterion. From the psalter. And it means a stringed instrument 
whose music is obtained by striking the strings. In our text, it's there, verse 19, in the words, making melody, twanging the strings. Bottom line, this is not a drum of our modern understanding. An animal skin stretched over a hollow log or a ceramic or metal cylinder. It's not there. It's not in the book. And even if you find it in the book, in the RSV, it is part of the musical instruments of Nebuchadnezzar's pagan society. That ought to tell, you, tell us something. What do we say about cultures which have no brass, or they don't have any woodwinds, or they don't have any string instruments? I remember our missionary, Don Pataki, told us of the African churches to whom he ministered. They used drums to accompany worship songs of the people, but I have to say it's not the snare drums, it's not the band drums that we have in our country. What about electronic instruments like our Yamaha Clavinova sitting right here? Do you know that virtually every kind, every kind, if not every instrument, is on that piano electronically? You say, what do you mean? Oboe, saxophone, trumpet, bells, triangle, pipe organ, clarinet, even drums are electronically on that instrument. Which brings up my point. Just because they're available to us does not compel us to use them. You see, sometimes the world's use of such instruments for rock music and dance bands and parties and such is so ingrained into people's thinking that they cannot handle the use of these same instruments in a spiritual format, especially in worship. They do not consider it possible to play such instruments in a God-honoring way. And you know, from what we hear coming out of contemporary worship services, they have a point. At best, the use of choirs, the use of instruments may complement the music of a worship service, but neither of them, not choirs and not instruments, neither of them are essential. They are complementary. Think about countries like China, where Christianity is forbidden. Think about the Muslim countries, where they're killing Christians, even today as I speak. They have underground churches sometimes literally, physically, underground, <laughs> like the Christians used to meet in the catacombs of Rome. Would it be conducive for church worship to have a choir singing underground or playing trumpets, horns, harps for everybody to hear? See, they're not required. You can have them, but they're not required, and in places where it's so dangerous like that to expose yourself and what you're doing in worshiping God, prudence would say, put a zipper on it. Don't use it if you don't have to. Now, point B, what are the characteristics of worshipful music? Forget necessarily the instruments or, the, or voice. What's to be characteristic of both? Voice and music, just worshipful music. Firstly, 
It is to be somber. That's just another word for serious. Be a serious reflection on the will of God. Look at verse 15 in our text. Be, listen, listen to these words. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The Greek word means an abandoned or profligate lifestyle. Now, all of these are warnings, and they're issued against the idea, can I say it, of letting your hair down, of letting yourself go when it comes to worship music. Any of you that have witnessed some of the party scenes in movies or in real life, know what Paul is talking about. The world relishes the idea of working themselves into a frenzy and relaxing any and all inhibitions of restraint. So Paul is saying something like, when you come together before God in worship, restrain yourself. This is not time for letting loose, but a time, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, even in what was a legitimate use of the gift of tongues, of the ability to speak true languages without formal training in them for the purpose of propagating the gospel, Paul told the Corinthian church, What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Same as we have learned this morning about our music. Verse 19, we're to address one another to build each other up in the faith. But the Corinthian brethren, they were butting in when someone else was speaking. There was a kind of one-upmanship going on. Chaos ensued. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, writes Paul. He's a God of peace. Verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly manner, says Paul. God's not into chaos. What was his point? His point was, restrain yourself, control your emotions. You are worshiping God, and he is not into chaos. He is not into confusion. Our text says, don't act like a drunk. Never witness a drunk? I mean, when they're drunk, they lose their inhibitions. They fall into two categories. Sometimes they're silly and stupid, and other times they're mean and angry. But either way, they just go at it, already, whatever they feel like doing or saying. And Paul is saying in our text, don't act like a drunk. But, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Now, some protest. They'll say, well, that, that's exactly what I'm doing, Pastor. I, I, just, I, I, I just feel the Spirit moving, so, so I have to move. I, I, have to, um, I have to shout. I have to jump. I have to sway with the music. You know what that is? It's an appeal to sin in the name of the Spirit. See, how do I know that? Look at... I'm going to read it to you from Paul. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32. In answer to those who said 
Um, I just got to speak my peace because the Spirit is moving me. Paul answers this way. The Spirit, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. What is he saying? Don't blame it on the Spirit when you act in a disorderly way. The Spirit of prophets can control themselves. You don't say, well, the Spirit was moving me and I just had to have my peace. Say my peace, sing my peace, or whatever. No. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. So the first thing is that we're to have a sober reflection on the will of God when we sing together and when we come together for worship. We're not to act, be filled with wine, drunkenness, but be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, we're to have a conscious awareness that God is watching and listening. I'm emphasizing the word conscious. I know you know this if you think about it, but often we don't think about it. We just act. We just do. And what I'm saying here is we have to have a conscious awareness that God is watching. While we're worshiping this morning, God is watching and God is listening. We've learned this music this morning that worship music is addressed to each other for the purpose of building up one another in the faith, but also that the music is performed with all of our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father. Notice the next phrase. For everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. What is the chief characteristic of God? The chief characteristic. What can be said of God's attributes that is distinct to him alone? If we say God is loving, okay, men can love, right? If we say God is just, men can be just in their decisions. So what makes God God? It is the idea that God is holy. If he has love, it is a holy love. If he is just, it is holy justice. If he is righteous, it is holy righteousness. Remember, Moses explained to Aaron, Aaron's sons, defiled the Lord's worship by offering unauthorized fire, and God torched them on the spot right there. How'd you like to have your son struck dead by God on the spot? And there you are, and you watched it. So Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. And in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Leviticus 10, verse 3. I'm glad he didn't speak up, aren't you? I'm glad he didn't badmouth God. 
Is the God of the new covenant any different? Is he any less holy? Is he any more lenient when it comes to us approaching him? Let me read it for you from Hebrews 12. Since we are receiving, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God, New Testament God, our God is a consuming fire. Oh, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. God hasn't changed. God is the same God. He's watching and he's listening in our worship. And we ought to have that as part of our conscious awareness. I think that some of the shenanigans that goes on in in uh, singing and so forth among Christian in, in certain Christian circles would sober up tremendously if they just thought God is listening. And if they had a concept of that God is holy, of course, if he's just the man upstairs, if he's just some irreverent deity, he's not the God of the Bible, then they might just be as wicked as ever. Number three, we've learned worship music is sober. That's serious. We are to be aware that God is listening. Okay, now number three. It is to be an expression of gratitude to God for all that we are and all that we have in Him. Now I'm going to have a whole message on worship through thanksgiving, but look at verse 20. It says of our singing to God, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. The twin text is Colossians 3 verse 16 and following. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3. Verse 16 and 17. No contradiction there. Paul writing Colossians as well as writing Ephesians. Just giving us more material. Wait a minute. Verse 20 of the Ephesians text. Sing thanks to God for everything. Did you see that? The word everything. Does that mean bad things too? Does that mean sorrowful things too? You know this, that much of life is fraught with reversals because we live in a cursed world. And some heartache that we bring, or we experience, we bring on ourselves because of willful sin. So when the Lord rebukes us, when he chastens us, when he disciplines us, honest hymnology will reflect that. That's why we have, in the Trinity hymnal in particular, uh, songs written sometimes in the minor tunes. We have not known thee as we are, nor cared that we are known by... That's minor tunes. It's not exactly something that uh, hits the ear and makes us, you know, this is great. What are they doing? The hymn writers are attempting by uh, their writing of the melodies in the minor tunes to express 
thanks to God for everything, even the hard things that God sends into our lives. And yet the sorrowful tones of such hymnology usually reflects an assured, hopeful outcome. If you look at the hymns that are in the minor tunes, the, the last verse or so whew, will lift you right up. They will. Because they remind us of the hard things that have come into our lives because of our sin. But then in the last few verses, they'll talk about the glorious outcome because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why are we lifted up? The writer of Hebrews writes, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 10 and following. I think we can all be thankful for that, can we not? I'll take a spanking or so from God. It makes me holy, if indeed holiness is his condition. We're entering into his presence with peace. And we know that we're dressed in the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. So, this isn't the final word on music, but I hope I've stirred some thoughts with regard to it. There's certain things that are essential. Singing to edify one another. Singing to the Lord from the heart, with all of your heart. Choirs, yeah. Instruments, yeah. Optional, can be, cannot be. Well, our church has gone through that at times where we've had people that played instruments and then later they could not or moved on or whatever and we've been short-staffed and some of those things. So those things, but bring to bear these things that are in this text with regard to the music. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And then thinking in terms of soberness and thinking of praising of God and singing the truth in the words that we represent. Now you're going to have a chance to sing right now. <laughs> I hope you'll sing with gusto and great love for Christ. Our closing hymn is from <clears throat> Trinity, number 62, and Jared will come and lead us.